Welcome to the lab, Flick Lab. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I couldn't think of anything better for this one. So, I am... <laughs> I'm Karri. I studied media. Moika. He's Tom Franklin, our guest. And Carrie's friend. Indeed he is. At, at least for the moment. Yeah. We, we, yeah, we, we, can, we are going to have to have a check on that after this episode. Yeah, that's right. Should we have actually checked if we could arrange like a monetary deal with Tom Franklin? Because after this episode, we might need one to keep him on going in this podcast. <laughs> up to you. I, I, for a moment, I was hoping that you were planning it so that Tom Franklin would pay us for doing these episodes. Oh, even better. <clears throat> but for the pleasure of talking to you guys. <laughs> that's what you say now. But... Afterwards, who knows? Yeah, afterwards, who knows? And this other Finnish guy is my colleague Henrik, who has been here since the day one. We've been soldiering on for 40 plus episodes, and it's going to be soon 50, and we'll be having some special party for that episode. I still have my license to thrill. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my, my apologies for that one. This is good. I'm ashamed of myself for the record. I'm a, I'm a disgrace to the podcasting community. <laughs> Shame on you. But but mind you, we still are the best podcast in Finland. And one of the only ones. I would still say. I would yeah. still say. You check out the Finnish podcast hashtag. You find like two shows. And so we are the best. We simply don't show up on that one hashtag. Oh, well, there's that. There's uh, like a public broadcaster news in English or Finnish, but that doesn't count. I Henrik. mean, the best of three doesn't really mean much. <laughs> well, we are a huge shit in Serbia. So, oh, yes. You know, yeah. And we, we, we did break ground in Poland. We did. We did. We broke the over 1000 downloads for our Poland episode a while back. And we do have one Serbian fan, or could be one Ser- Serbian bot, mind you. But we do have one download for every single episode since, at least since the Pretty Village, Pretty Flame Serbia episode. For every episode. <laughs> it is simply the Serbian government, you know, checking yeah. back on us that we don't change the tune here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we have Franklin, Tom Franklin, uh, here with his tea, <laughs> stirred, not shaken. I believe there's going to be some stronger stuff in this show as well. What do you have there? Well, not, not stronger jokes. We are not, we are on our A material here at the moment. <laughs> well, it's Argentinian Malbec, red wine, and neither stirred nor shaken, I'm afraid. Okay, I have Carlo Rossi rose wine. Refreshing, apparently. Unfortunately, I didn't uh, get this uh, fresh fix yogurt. Coffee. Coffee. Very black yep. for this episode. Like James Bond would have done it. But yeah, who is Tom Franklin? Who am I? My goodness. Well, I first 
I guess we should, we should start by saying how I first met you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I just come back from Nepal in 2013 hmm. and had some spare cash after I came back and just really wanted to visit Finland. And I was on such little money that I, I had to resort to couch surfing. You had to resort to me. Yeah. And it it's a miracle you chose me because I didn't have a profile picture, if you remember that. I do not remember that. But you turned out to be all right. Well, I didn't have a profile picture. Nevertheless, Carrie accepted my couch surfing request. Crazy guy. Don't trust him. And, um, I mean, I could have been anybody. Like, I don't know, Ted Bundy. Yeah, yeah. If I'm right, we met in Vurusari, Helsinki. Yes, we did. But you were there in my flat at the time, and you stayed? For three days. Three days, right. And you, you were the guy who had some... You know, these little papers where you had written some Finnish word and tried to learn them, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah, that was you. Uksi lipua kitos, which means one ticket, please, in Finnish, which is all I can say. <laughs> I think. And where did you grow up? Halifax, West Yorkshire, England, which is in the north of England. Right. We have actually some person here who can tell us the insights and outs about England while doing an episode on... Uh, rather English films. But in this case, it's not an English film, because Sean Connery is, of course, Scottish. That's true. And where do you live right now, so we can stalk you? In the same place as I was born. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, all right. And what do you do? I work for the biggest distributor in the world, in fact, as an administrator. So. Wow. And most of all, you did grow up with Bond or Bond films. As, as oh, did yeah. I. Of course. And Who where didn't? did you... Well, I guess so. There's a funny thing when it comes to watching Bond films. It seems that like most of the people that started watching Bonds, they found Bond via their father. Is it the same for you as well? Because it, it is for me the case. Probably my granddad, really. <laughs> Close enough. Or maybe I just came to it by myself. In fact, I'm not too sure because I was. it was so long ago. Yeah. Long, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away. How old were you? Mm, seven. Yeah, I was in the same ballpark. Five, six. I'm guessing seven. Okay. Yeah, it, it was the case that I went through my father's VHS collection, and it so turns out that he had recorded from the broadcasters at the time in the Finnish television at least half of the Bond films, and I got seriously addicted. I do remember that I used to go to my friend's house next door or something and we would play Bond games at the yard. Like we were shooting ourselves with our fingers and oh, I'd right. be the bad guy or I would be the Bond and I would die and it was so exciting. And we were heavily inspired by Live and Let Die. I think we will get to that film at some point but not on this run. Did you play N64? I did play it afterwards, yeah, and I did play Goldeneye. Yeah, like me too. Crazy, <laughs> great. Yeah, we did go through with my friends, like through all the levels, got all the extra levels and hidden special powers, invisibility and invincibility. That's where I learned a lot of English. I'm pretty sure I had 
Tomorrow Never Dies on PlayStation 1. That I never played. That was a different kind of... It was from the Tomb Raider perspective, this third-person perspective camera, as they call it. I think it was, like, heavily inferior. GoldenEye, of course, is a classic for N64. It's a classic film. I might have something to say about that. Maybe we can talk about it in the Pierce Brosnan episodes, but... <laughs> Exciting. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had a drink like Bond would have had it, like vodka martini, shaken not stirred? Oh, yes. Well, I, well I, kind of close, like vodka and coke, but <laughs> mm. I don't know about that one. Did you try the Roger Moore way? Bourbon no ice. Never, but there's always time. Oh, well, yeah, there's some time still left for us. You can try everything once. If we survive this episode, and there's also Vesper. That is described in the novel of Casino Royale, as well as in the film. And in this film, as mentioned, Bond also eats in his hotel green fix, yogurt, coffee, very black. Of course I've had champagne, which is a very Bond drink. Oh yeah. Any other Bondian things that you've done? Have you used the Walter PPK or Beretta played Baccarat? Or... I have fired a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> um... Radical. Not a typical Bond weapon. I've worn a tuxedo before, mm. which is, of course, very James Bond. It's classic James Bond. I actually took the James Bond shower for two years, which is... What is that? Turning the temperature on hot and ending with cold, which is known as the James Bond shower, mm. which is kind of cool, literally. Yeah, sounds kind of healthy, I guess. Henrik, have you done any Bondian actions? Well, I too have done the shower thing, and I'm actually still doing it, even today. Really? I don't know if it actually helps, but I've been told that it does have an effect, and I do feel more energized after finishing the shower on cold water. Yep. I do it as well, if it counts like this, that I keep it for 99% on the hot, and then in the last 5 seconds I switch it to cold, and then I stop it because it's unbearable. Yeah, outside of that, not that much. Although, of course, I am a raging alcoholist and a huge misogynist. So if that counts, you know, I'm I'm there really on the <laughs> level of Bond. <laughs> but no, of course, Henrik is joking here. He is uh, super open and such of an alpha male for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't sound like a lie at all when you are saying it. <laughs> when it comes to me, yeah, I have shot with some pistols in, in shooting range. But that really? was like when I was a little kid. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. What was the first James Bond film that you guys have seen? Do you have any recollection whatsoever? Who goes first? Hmm. Do you know what? It's I have no idea. I think it was Goldfinger, which has always been the most popular one, in my in my opinion. Um, either Goldfinger or Moonraker. Oh yeah, that's why you love Moonraker so much. I think Moonraker is the best one, but we'll come on to that in a later episodes, I'm sure. We will have so much fun in the Moonraker episode, right Henrik? <laughs> well, well, we are going to have at least some fun on someone's expense on the future episodes. <laughs> It's going to be so much fun to fight against your guest. 
I, I don't know. <laughs> it it may also be, you know, me and Tom tag teaming against you because you are the major Roger Moore fan of the podcast. Oh, am I? But yeah, when it comes to me, I also have no idea which I I seen as the first one. I do remember that in our home collection we had definitely live and let die. That that's been a big thing in my five or six year old me. And then there has been you only live twice. I remember watching that one pretty early. Uh, Thunderball. But of course, you don't really appreciate the plot until you get to your teenage years. You appreciate the different things. You know, it all feels way more real when you're a kid or a teenager or something sure. like that. And it kind of carves the film into your memory forever, in good or bad. Yeah. yeah. For example, wonderful horror movies like Uninvited that apparently were extremely scary at the time, but now they are rather of a joke. But um, do you want to disclose who is your favorite James Bond? I don't know, it's a three-way split. Oh. To me? Yeah, it, it's hard to come up with just one. Henrik, Henrik, please, please for the love of God, say Timothy Dalton is there. Uh, Timothy Dalton is the dark horse on the, yes. on the three horns. Yes. The other two are Sean Connery, of course, and Daniel Craig. Okay, so clearly Henrik likes the more, I don't know, realistic or more hard-edged Bond. Uh, uh, most, most definitely. I I do like my bones more grim and more dark and in a way I guess you could say more violent. And in a way I guess with more character or background or character development of sorts. Of sorts. To me it's not that much about the character development because one, one could argue that from all the bones we have had Daniel Craig is kind of the only one who has had any real development as a character. All the other bones have more or less simply stayed the same without huge impacts on their lives. Especially in the early bones from the 60s and 70s, you see almost zero of character development. Like basically everything just happens around Bond in in, in a way and he's not very much yeah. affected by anything. Yeah. And and even if they have like something more dramatic, like James Bond's wife gets killed, then yeah. the next one is basically discarded as something like... Also, the whole universe around Bond usually kind of revolves on itself. In a way that nothing that happens in a, any previous film has any effect on, you know, the later movies that come out. In Pierce Brosnan's Bond's... Pierce goes and kills major media moguls and major public figures. Nobody ever actually mentions these guys on the later films, even though they should have a huge impact on society. Like, for example, the media mogul who bites it in Tomorrow Never Dies, who basically owns the entire media landscape and is, is the CNN times 100. He's not even mentioned, you know, on the later films. And the today's movie from Russia yeah. with Love is kind of a also a specialty in sense that, well, from Russia with Love, it's one of the very few Connery Bonds where the previous films are in any way taken into account. There is a mention for, in From Russia 
about Dr. No, who James Bond met in a previous movie. But that is kind of the only effect that, you know, the whole Doctor Who incident has on Connery's Bond. And the revenge aspect of it. Yeah, a couple of bad guys remembers to name drop the guy. Yeah, it was clearly a conscious choice that there was no really continuity between these films at the time. And I kind of prefer that, at least after watching the whole Daniel Craig run thus far... Ooh, yeah, the whole continuity thing really shot itself in the ass, Inspector. Yeah, that was terrible, terrible. Yeah, it was. by Spectre it was just a forced continuity for the series. I think you're right, things don't really get personal until the Pierce Brosnan era. Well, what do you mean with personal? You have license to kill, for God's sakes. Yeah, we find out Bond's wife died during one Roger Moore film. Well, the wife dies in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and then yeah. they get back to it in For Your Eyes Only in the beginning opening. Except he begins to show real regret and sorrow at his lost um, romance prospects in The World Is Not Enough. He felt the betrayal really hard. Electro King. Yeah, Electro King. He, yeah, the, the Electra King did have some effect on Bond, in a way that in that story Bond acts like he's hurt by, and feels betrayed by Electra. The world is not enough. It's interesting that it tries to make the story a little bit more personal or something that actually affects, affects yeah. the character of Bond. So I give props for Michael Apted for directing this film in that sense. But uh, in many aspects, it, it falls on its face. And for me, Goldeneye is still like the best Bond of Brosnan by far. Yeah, and in, in Brosnan's Bonds, you kind of see that all those hardships, or all those heavy emotional issues, they affect Brosnan's Bonds only on those individual films. Like in Goldeneye, Brosnan faces the betrayal from his friend who was the bad guy, yeah. who he has to yeah. axe off in the ending of Codeneye. And that is a huge thing for Bond in Codeneye. It does not affect Bond in any way in the later films, same way as in Die Another Day, where Bond is tortured for over a year. And it once again, it's brought up as a huge thing for Bond, but later on, apparently the whole being tortured has no effect on the dude whatsoever. That was a huge lost opportunity. I mean, the film started quite strong, and then when you get to the torture, that's great. But after all, it just goes into this Roger Moore mode, where somehow, like, these life-threatening situations didn't have any effect whatsoever for the character, and it just goes into this, you know, slapstick route. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I didn't quite hear... Tom saying his favorite Bond actor just yet, but I guess it's Roger Moore. Roger Moore, Sean Connery. Um, it's kind of a four-way contest, really. <laughs> Sean Connery, Roger Moore, Daniel Craig. Hmm. Yeah. Again, Goldeneye, again, very good. So, Pierce Brosnan? Yeah, it's really tough, you know, to choose, because at the end of the day, each Bond actor brought something new to the table. Sean Connery was somebody who the ladies would definitely go to bed with. There would be no doubt about that. I mean, the guy is really good-looking. Yeah. And I have to make a side mention how I feel. Kind of old or weird, because I'm already older than Sean Connery was in Doctor No. 
He looks older. He does look older than me. And George Lazenby, well, I mean, for a newcomer to the world of acting, I think he did a pretty good job and he kind of owned it. He really wanted this role and he did his best. So I have no really major complaints. Lazenby's Bond had a lot of issues, a lot of troubles, and the failure of On Her Majesty's Secret Service can't be pinned on simply on Lazenby. The script he was given to work with when he tried to make an entry point into the franchise is kind of a, a huge piling piece of garbage. Really? That's I will say that probably On Her Majesty's is very close to being the best Bond film there is. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah it has one of the best scripts that there is. That, that says a hell of a lot about the franchise. It says more about the franchise than about the film, in my opinion. This is really confusing, but I guess we get to that in the next episode. When it comes to favorites, was it like that, that uh, Henrik and you voted for Goldfinger? And I was vehemently defending from Russia with love because there is the fact, of course, that Goldfinger has been covered so many times and I think we are everybody is kind of sick of it, so... It's very cliche, Bob, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah, in a way. It, on other sense, it kind of established all the tropes that we have had enjoyed for like 50 years. Yeah. But uh, I think it's really great that we sh- show the different sides of Bond, because this is a quite a different... Bond film. It's similar to Dr. No, but it's in every way an improvement from Dr. No. In my opinion, it's it's when Bond really gets into his own. It's the Bond that we all know, with the uh, catchy lines and the um, and the style yeah. and the panache, which you yeah. do which you do see in Dr. No, but not quite as to the extent that you do see in From Russia With Love. Yeah, the humor is getting better and more yeah. noticeable here. I would say that this film is not merely a Bond film, but it's uh, one of the great detective thrillers of those times. And because it's such a huge difference to all the stuff that we're going to watch after this one, I thought it was a wonderful pick. There's also the, also the reason that this is a big fan favorite. And for many fans, this is the best Bond film of all time. Why did we choose this film? Because fuck Goldfinger. And my experience with this film, I have no idea, but I do know this. I have probably, without lying, seen this around hundred times. It could be. It could wow. be. Wow. Could be. <laughs> and that makes you feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did have my all my childhood and teenage years to watch this film. So, how would you do the synopsis for this film? Okay, I can go first here. So, the plot involves. Spectre, the criminal organization which wants to acquire the Lecter decoding machine from the Russians that they plan to work out by using a Russian girl as a bait for the Brits. Who's very nice, by the way. Apparently, I heard such a rumor as well. It's uh, an Italian girl playing a Russian girl who is a member of the Russian cryptography section in Turkey. She carries the title of Corporal of State Security. The girl is unaware that Rosa Klebb is no longer the head of operations to Soviet intelligence. It was also very attractive. This was a weird one to hear, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> if you want, we can simply edit that out on the post. <laughs> but I mean, there's nothing wrong with Lottolenia. In this film, she just looks really creepy and weird. In this film, she simply is an 80-year-old Nazi, so... <laughs> well, I think she used to be a model. Yeah? I think so, yeah. Emphasis on word, used to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well... Now she's, of course, six feet under, like most of the cast. And looks even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, character of Bond. Well, what to say about this? I, I suppose James Bond is something that every male wants to be in, in their life. The man with impeccable tastes and irresistible sexual magnetism with dark and dry wit. Yeah, Bond as a character really is a male fantasy, wish fulfillment on its highest, I, w- I would almost say. I-, I know that Bond has female fans, but I would say that the character itself was mostly written, also acted and directed for the male audiences. And you kind of can see it in pretty much everything Bond does throughout the films. How he goes into adventures, he travels around the world, he punches people. Yeah, he's alpha. Yeah, he drinks too much but never gets drunk. He shoots people. He has an unlimited company credit which he can simply use to feed his gambling habit. <laughs> which... which oh, oh. I would say runs uh, on a catastrophic levels. <laughs> he he smokes way too much, but that has no effect on his health. He shoots yeah. people. He basically can sleep with any woman, whoever he chooses. And most notably, he shoots people. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, he's really alpha. And um, it's funny you should mention smoking, because I've never seen so much smoking in a Bond film than, than this one. I, mm. I don't know whether you guys noticed this. There is so much smoking, which would nowadays be unthinkable because you would have the uh, you know the health activists boycotting the film and whatnot. But in the 60s, you could smoke in the film and get away with it. And by God, I in a lot of ways, I actually love it on these old Sean Connery bones. The constant smoking and co- complete disregard towards the cigarette smoke health rules. Tom, for a second I was confused because I thought you said smirk instead of smoke, so I was wondering what the health authorities have to do with that. But there's a lot of, a lot of smirking here, I guess, from Connery's part too. He seems to be enjoying acting with Pedro Armendariz, especially. Well, who wouldn't? Really? Mm. Like, rest in peace. Rest in peace, yeah. But here we get naturally to Ian Fleming. Who indeed was on the set. Of from Russia with love. And it was. He was a commander for the Royal Navy and spent the war stuck in a room, number 39 of the Naval Intelligence, and never saw any real action. So basically James Bond was kind of escapism for him. You can see it in the pages. I, I can see why people were writing some reviews about his novels like Casino Royale, that, that this is other trash. I don't think so, but I can see that there are some kind of boyish, dreamlike aspects about it. Like uh, eating all these expensive foods and playing at the casino with uh, crazy amounts and having um, spy 
equipment in every goddamn room where he goes. Yes, indeed. It was a. It's the lesser novel, I think. You think? Okay. Well, uh, Casino Royale as a novel has the problem that you really have to understand Baccarat before you start reading it, because then you're just going to be bored to death with those gambling scenes. But that's exactly yeah. why in the in the film they changed the Baccarat into Texas Hold'em. So when the war ended, uh, Fleming got kind of spiritually lost and said that uh, his mental hands were quote-unquote empty and he hated his job. And the golden name comes from his romantic hideaway in Jamaica, which was his marvelous villa where he arrived in 1942. There's one great kind of a Bondian line that he said to his girlfriend or kind of a date at the time and he said quote I hope you're not a lesbian and kissed her passionately <laughs> but Ian Fleming needed something more to do than kissing girls so Cold War was now all the rage so he put the pen to the paper or actually typewriter started writing Bond and the name James Bond comes from one of the so-called Bibles that Ian Fleming had at his apartment or Goldeneye. It was a book called Birds of the West Indies by somebody called James Bond. And he simply stole the name because he thought it was masculine and had like a, some kind of a punch. Mm. And interestingly, Ian's wife, Annie, didn't approve of the books and said that they were something like total trash. From Russia with Love we're going to talk about today is, was published in 1957 and in 1961 Kennedy was listing his top 10 favorite books and one of them was From Russia with Love and this kind of gave the team the interest to move to From Russia with Love after Dr. New. The journey from the book to the film was kind of a long one like the first book Casino Royale was already published in 1952 there was this TV adaptation episode of Casino Royale, which apparently was quite terrible. Yeah. And he always wanted to bring his books into the silver screen. There was a lot of adversities on the way. Broccoli, for example, wanted to do that, but then her wife got cancer and died during the process, and some companies said to him that it's not going to happen, sorry. And then there was also Harry Saltzman, who did have an option to shoot the Bond films, but he didn't have the financial means to put it on the film. So he was basically sitting on a gold mine, but just couldn't pull it off without help. So finally, when Broccoli had said to someone that he really wants to do the Bond films next, he met with Harry Saltzman, and Harry Saltzman wanted to join with Broccoli and start to produce these films as a team. And so they did. They actually went to Colombia, studios they said get the hell out of my office or something to that effect <laughs> then they went to united artists after a little bit of uh, feeling the mood during the discussion they said yes they took a pretty huge risk because the budget was going to be one million dollars which at the time was uh, a lot of money especially because later on they decided that sean connery is going to play the lead this unknown Scottish person. And the studio wanted somebody American to play this role. What? Yep. Yeah, they did. That just makes no sense. Yeah, it doesn't, but uh, they were kind of going with the, you know, most people, I guess, like the American accent or... Yeah. 
I would imagine anyway. But yeah, the easiest book to do budget-wise was Dr. No, so they did that with one million dollars. And after that, because it was pretty successful, they got to do the second one that we're talking about today from Russia with Love. And there the budget was doubled. It was up to two million now. And if we go further, Goldfinger got uh, this budget even bigger, so it was three million. And the rest is history. Pretty much, yeah. And believe it or not, but many British directors turned down Dr. No, but Terence Young accepted and he did direct From Russia with Love as well, as well as Thunderball. Kind of the more serious-toned Bond films. Goldfinger was typical Guy Hamilton, kind of a lot of jokes. Wolf Mankiewicz was not confident with the script. He feared that the film would be a disaster, he dropped from the project and asks to be his name removed from the credits of Dr. No. Kind of uh, crazy to think about this in retrospect. And how wrong was he? Indeed, and Ian Fleming wanted his friend Noel Coward to play Dr. No, didn't work. He also wanted Christopher Lee to play Dr. No, but yeah. Noel Coward actually responded as a telegram to Fleming and said, no, no, no. And already in Dr. No and more in From Russia with Love, there was this added humor that Terence Young uh, encouraged for Connery to do, to kind of ditch the scripted lines in favor of some more improvised lines. Maybe the first one that you can think of out of the series is the... I think they were on their way to a funeral. Or, Sergeant, make sure he doesn't get away. Yeah, that's kind of the beginnings. It's the genesis. I guess we should go through the actors. We have a lot to talk about the actors today. Oh, yes. Henrik, who the hell is Sean Connery? Well, Connery is a, is kind of a these lesser-known small-time indie actors that you kind of a, may have come in contact with. Some of them more prestigious, only played in movie festival cinema releases. Yeah, oh, is it the one guy who acted in this Czechoslovakian and uh, Hong Kongese film, like... 65 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, precisely it's the same guy. Uh, also, I, I would say most best known for his roles in Highlander 2, The Avengers from 98, and, well, well, I guess The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You always pick the best films out of <laughs> everyone's careers. <laughs> okay, no... Also, for the rest of his Bond films, uh, The Rock, wasn't he in Highlander 1 as well? He was, he was, but Highlander 2 sucks way more than Highlander 1. <laughs> and Murder on <laughs> the Orient Express, and then one more unknown <laughs> film, but this was before Bond times. Another time, another place. The Man Who Would Be King, Finding Forrester, The Untouchables. Yeah, indeed. The... Um... Mafia film. Yeah. Precisely. Also a classic. If you haven't checked out The Untouchables, I highly recommend it. Cary Grant was considered as the James Bond, who was in Cubby's wedding as the best man, but Cubby knew that um, he would probably sign on only for one film, so he was kind of out of the picture. Then Peter Hunt, the editor of the early Bond films, he was working on, on the Fiddle film, the producer of that 
film was Ben Fish and he knew Harry Saltzman and Ben Fish was suggesting Sean Connery for the role. So Ben Fish, thank you. Cubby then watched the film Darby O'Gill and the Little People. And Cubby is the producer, by the way. I keep referring to Cubby, but he's the Albert R. Broccoli. Harry Saltzman, the other producer, on his end said that Sean Connery moved very well. Before acting, Sean Connery was basically like a laborer, steel bender, fixer, kind of all-around guy. And the studio, as mentioned, didn't want to go forward with him, but he was forced to go with him by the producers. Terence Young, the director being the gentleman that he is, he made this rugged, kind of a diamond in the rough, Sean Connery, the next, or the first James Bond. Interestingly, Ian Fleming, the writer of the books, didn't want Connery to be Bond at all. And how wrong was he? (laughs) Yep, after seeing Dr. No, he changed his mind. And I understand he did get to see also from Russia with Love, but unfortunately during the making of Goldfinger he died and he never saw his precious James Bond character to truly pick off around the world. Henrik, then we have Daniela Bianchi. It's a former beauty pageant queen. This is her first film. Considering that, I mean, this is a fantastic performance, I would say. Well, it's not precisely her first. It's it's her first, uh, I guess, a major film. Yeah, it says introducing Daniela Bianchi anyway. Well, at least in introducing to the American and British audiences. I do know that she appeared about three or four other films before from Russia. I've understood that these are some Italian features. I myself haven't seen them and I also haven't seen other films from Bianchi. I have. I have. Yeah, I, I, I know Bianchi did that one film, Operation Kid Brother, with yes, with, yeah, with 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 Sean Connery's brother Neil Connery. Yeah, Neil Connery heard exactly that much about the movie and automatically decided to skip it. Well, I did watch it, Henrik. I did suffer through it. Indeed, it has Neil Connery in sort of a Bond parody. And stars many of the stars from the previous Bond films. There's uh, Adolfo Selly, I guess how you say it. He was acting in Thunderball as Lago. Then we have Bernard Lee, who plays M in the Bond series. Anthony Dawson, who played uh, Professor Dent and Blofeld, now in Ru- From Russia with Love. And uh, Louis Maxwell, Miss Moneypenny, is also in that film. Regardless of that fact, this was like a torture of a film to go through and unfortunately Bianchi left acting behind her already in 68 why i don't know but her last chance was perhaps presciently titled film the last chance so maybe she failed that last chance huh. uh, there was that moment in time when basically every movie studio tried to capitalize with the name of the relatives of a famous actors. Much like here, Neil Connery, or like, for example, using Frank Stallone in your films, who is a brother of Sylvester Stallone. So th- this was a thing years back, and as far as I've seen these films, I've checked out some of them simply out of a macabre curiosity, and none of them appeared to be good. 
We truly should have more terrible films in this podcast, because those usually make the best episodes. At least they are more fun to cover. Kind of. It's only bad reviews that get the most attention. That could be. Well, then we have Pedro Armendariz. Uh, director John Ford called from Russia with Love director Terence Young and asked if they'd have a role for Pedro Armendariz. And indeed they did. And he was signed up for the role of Karim Bey, head of station T-Turkey. And do you know what? He is my favorite actor in the entire film. Well, I can't blame you. He is fantastic in this film. He's also fantastic in Ford Apache. Yeah. Yeah. Which I understood is kind of a outsider from Russia. He's few, if if not the only other English language film he has made. As Tom noted, Ian Fleming befriended Pedro Armendariz at the set. Mm. Kind of a famous Mexican actor, and also known for maybe the the Pearl from 1947. Many, many films. He starred in a lot of films. Could be like a hundred. Then we have, of course, the serious staples. Louis Maxwell, the one and only Miss Moneypenny, who did star as Moneypenny alongside Bond actors such as Sean Connery, George Lazenby, Roger Moore. It was like a 22-year run for her. Louis Maxwell was actually offered two different roles. There was Miss Moneypenny and Sylvia Trench, the kind of a glamour girl. But Maxwell didn't really prefer the idea of being in Bond's pyjama tops in the golfing scene, so she chose Miss Moneypenny, and good for her. And a very iconic character, too. Yep, and we have even more legends here. We have Desmond Llewellyn. Is that how you pronounce that? Um, I have no idea. It's um, Welsh, (laughs) so... Yeah, let's say Desmond Llewellyn. The role came completely out of the blue for him. He simply got a message from his agent saying that there would be a role for him in the Bond film. And he did act even longer than Louis Maxwell. He did act in the series Until the World is Not Enough. Played the role for 37 years. Sadly, he didn't get to die of old age, but died in a car crash. It was a car crash, I think? Yeah. Rest in peace. Yes, indeed. And we have Bernard Lee, of course, playing M for a really long time as well. Played M since the first film Doctor No in 1962 until Moonraker in 1979 and then died in at this age of 73. There is the thing that For Your Eyes Only from 1981, Broccoli, I believe it was, who wanted to respect his contributions and because of that there was no character of M in the film. He was simply on some kind of a temporary leave in Octopus from 1983 he was replaced and then we have uh, Eunice Gason if I'm pronouncing that correctly she is acting as Sylvia Trench known for her two Bond films and what else Henrik The Revenge of Frankenstein from 1958 and a lot of TV roles until 72 when she stopped acting this character was actually supposed to be a recurring comedic relief character but yeah, as you said, this is one of the few Bond films where you have continuities, so she is part of that, but disappeared after this film. And died quite recently at the age of 90, just last year in 2018. Okay, Robert Shaw. Who wouldn't know Robert Shaw? Henry can tell us more. Most, uh, I would say most famous for playing dubious and villainous roles. 
yeah. yeah, he he was the drunken out captain in in Jaws, and he appeared straight out as the bad guy, either a bad guy or as a heroic villain in number of films like the criminal adventure comedy The Sting, and also in some of the war movies like Battle of the Bulge. Okay, and you still didn't remember, uh, you still didn't remind us of Jaws. I, I did mention Jaws. Okay, I'm just retarded today. No, probably even <laughs> mostly for Jaws in his role as Quint, yeah. Even more so than from Russia with Love. Also, maybe A Man for All Seasons. I don't know, Henrik maybe has seen this film. And there's then there's a quality adventure called Avalanche Express from 1979. Sadly, this was his last film, and he died after suffering a brutal heart attack after ignoring symptoms previously while playing golf that day. Well, the um, Robert Shaw was actually born 20 miles from my house. Oh, which cool. is kind of cool, really. It is, yeah. All right, well, then we have Lotte Lenia, as discussed before. She had just gotten nominated for an Academy Award for 1961's The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone and accepted the rather differing role in as Rosa Klebb, the, I believe it's in the novel as a lesbian character. Oh, baby. And Henrik, do you, do, have you seen this film, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone? Unfortunately not. I've only seen From Russia, from oh. Lenia's filmography. Okay. I've come to understand that she, like you pointed out, kind of made her career on hard and more challenging roles and films that deal with kind of a taboo and challenging subjects during the time when they were made. Yeah. There, there is also the film The Appointment, which I, I also haven't seen myself, but I've come to understand that it deals with the subject of a high-ranking member of a society that who finds out that his wife, who also is a society figure in a sense, at the same time is actually running as a paid prostitute. Once again, a role in a film that deals with kind of a complicated and, well, it was made in the late 60s, so also maybe a bit of a taboo subject. Alright, then we have Walter Gottel. He plays, I don't know how to pronounce this, the character name that he's playing here, but he plays M-O-R-Z-E-N-Y. And since I'm in Poland, it, it has this R-Z combination. Therefore, I would pronounce this just shamelessly as Mojene, but maybe it's meant to be pronounced as Mortseni. I have no idea. But anyway... He is most known for his role later in the series, actually, as General Google in The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, and Octopussy, and A View to a Kill. Only for you. And Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge. You so you know so many quality films. I love this guy. I I I know how to pick all, all the masterpieces for each actor. <laughs> then we have Martin Beswick. She's one of the gypsy girls fighting in the film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Martin. <laughs> Martin Beswick. <laughs> 
Martin Beswick was a Jamaican beauty contester as well and won the contest, sold the car that she won and moved to London to try out acting. And she did first try out for Dr. No, but she did not get this part. But Terence Young kind of fancied her, uh, so so she did get the role in From Russia with Love. Then we have Anthony Dawson, already previously mentioned, but Anthony Dawson played Professor Dent in Dr. No, was playing James Bond in the dozens of auditions for Tatiana Romanova for this film. They were playing the hotel bedroom scene, and ah. he, he was the Bond, James Bond. And in this film, in From Russia with Love, do you know what he's acting as? The chair? Kinda. He's Kinda. playing Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Ah. Before the character was actually properly introduced to the franchise. Yeah, as Sam Loomis, I'm sorry. And his face is not shown, so... It doesn't, and neither is the actual name of the character ever mentioned in the film. He's simply this nameless leader of Spectre. The whole notion that he is Blofeld comes only when you see the later entries in the film and you kind of draw the connection between the leader of the Spectre and the cat. <laughs> and the cat's also nameless. Actually, guys, I'm not sure if his face is not shown here because... He is Ernst Stavro Blofeld, or because they didn't shoot enough shots in this film. Because I know they did have a lot of trouble in this film getting it all together. And uh, I'm yeah, I'm not sure how it went, but uh, it definitely works really well like this at this point that they don't show his face. However, the voice of Blofeld is not Anthony Dawson's. The voice belongs to Eric Paulman. So Eric Paulman was chosen, and he reprised his Blofeld voice in Thunderball. Alright, I'm done, guys. That's the actors. Anything to add, or should we, should we move on? I, I guess, you know, we have garnered all the actors to a point where, if we would want to continue the list, we would go kind of like the gypsy number three on the left. <laughs> so let's move on to the... <laughs> Crew, there's plenty to go. Sound department, Norman Wanstall designed the extremely noisy train scene sounds. So kudos to you. Editorial department is Peter Hunt. He has been editing tons of early Bond films and has to be noted in this podcast. He was really creative because of the problems that they had during the shooting and they were lacking some material. Director Terence Young walked in actually one day during the editing phase of post-production and asked if there were any completed scenes. So Peter Hunt said, yes, we have the scene with M, Q and Bond at the office. Young said, okay, let's see it, man. And Peter Hunt rolled the scene and cut it in such a way that Bond tries to open the briefcase, but then it cuts to Dr. No's explosion of the factory followed by rolling credits. Terence Young fell off his chair laughing. Then we have the music department. Monty Norman obviously created the James Bond tune that we all know and love. One of the hottest composers in the London theatre scene at the time. Harry Saltzman, the producer, coaxed him to join by telling he could come to Jamaica to record some stuff for Dr. No. And he said, I'll do it. Of course. 
And a James Bond theme is actually based on some of his earlier work for a non-released stage play. There was a track called A House for Mr. Biswas, and he kind of changed it up a little bit. And John Barry does the actual full soundtrack of From Russia with Love. So, yeah, apart from the Monty Norman James Bond theme, of course. Then we just simply cannot leave out Morris Binder. He's the title designer for James Bond films all the way up to License to Kill in 1989. It was purely his idea to create the gun barrel in the first place, using a pinhole camera. Whew! Uh, director, Terence Young, do you want to open up, Henrik? Yeah, from Terence Young, once again, a director from whom I haven't seen that many films, did, like you pointed out, did make the first Bond film, Dr. No, later on returned to make make the Thunderball, and Incon is, is something that he's unfortunately known for, Incon being also a flaming piece of garbage, but <laughs> but it's a way to kill your time for over two hours. As mentioned, did Dr. No from Russia with Love Thunderball. He had a habit of calling his crew as his children. Come along, children! <laughs> he also doesn't like close-ups, Henrik and Tom. Instead, more prefers full shots with action. I guess that's kind of clear in the gypsy scene, but... Um, but then, then again, there is a lot of close-ups in From Russia, still. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. Cinematography... Ted Moore has been the DP in Doctor No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, Diamonds are Forever, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun. So, a, a professional in the Bond circles. Script! John Harwood did the adaptation of the script, then Richard Maybaum made it into a... Full script brought in to rewrite the script, actually. One interesting aspect and a huge difference between the book and the film is, is the following. That the filmmakers wanted to avoid any political issues, Henrik and Tom, by not yes. using the name of Smirsh as the Russian organization. And so you Spectre. Yeah. Now she's working for Spectre. Uh, this was an actual umbrella organization, Smirsh of the Red Army, and Smirsh is the organization that is named in the books. The name Smirsh was actually invented by Joseph Stalin. And the word Smirsh is a, a portmanteau, meaning it was sort of an abbreviation from the Russian phrase smeared spionum. I did know that, but the uh, word Smirsh was actually used in the film twice. <laughs> it was. It was, but the Smirsh is not the opponent here. Yeah. So, Smirchpianum, or however you pronounce that, is death to spies in English. And in the film, they instead used the name Spectre, which is uh, this terrorist organization. Which is also kind of a funny, because in the PS2 game of the film, they once again, for some odd reason, I... I would have make the guess that it is for some copyright issue, but I'm I'm not certain why. But like in the film, they avoid using the name Smurfs, and because of that, they use Spectre. In the game, they actually avoid using Spectre and instead <laughs> use another made-up organization now called Octopus. 
I know the reason, Henrik. I know okay, the reason. Okay, please tell me. It's something to do with Kevin McClory, this guy from Thunderbolt times, who owned rights to the story of Thunderbolt, where Spectre was part of it. The reason why the Spectre, the movie, was released with the name Spectre, and they were able to use the name Spectre, that was after a, a long time of not being able to use the name Spectre. So there were some legal issues around this using this name. Okay, that that was kind of a my guess also, because it, it is such of a weird change to make, especially in a game that so heavily tr- tries to tie itself into the film. Yep. Unfortunately, perhaps Ken Adam, the longtime art director or actually production designer for Bond films, was unavailable because Stanley Kubrick thought that he is amazing after seeing Dr. No. And uh, Ken Adam went to do Kubrick's uh, Dr. Strangelove. Ken Adam was there and the art director Sid Kane takes the job of art directing or kind of production design as, as well. It's kind of interchangeable term, so I don't know where to draw the line with the term. Whew, would it be scene by scene, finally. Oh, I guess that would be the next logical course to take on this mission. Or illogical, but if you insist. Yeah, so we have the Metro Goldwyn Mayor and... Shut up, Lion. Then we got to perhaps one of the best openings for any James Bond film. You know, we, we we have the gun barrel, yeah, but this is perhaps one of the most classical and just most perfect versions of this gun barrel. So props to that. No other sets were ready after filming a couple of scenes in April, including the Blofeld shipboard scene and the chess scene. So the crew moved to shoot the films of nighttime opening scene in Gardens of Pinewood Studios, Henrik and Tom. There's a problem with the actor's face that is revealed underneath the mask as he looked too similar to Connery. They fixed that later. But what are the odds of looking like Connery? But yeah, shortly after completing this scene, Richard Maybaum made the, some adjustments to the script on 18th of April and then the crew moved to Istanbul. But let's talk about the opening scene at Pinewood. So what do you think about it? It's the first opening scene before credits that you get in this series before, because in Doctor No, you got directly into the credits. Does it excite you? In a way, yeah, but then again, the opening also is a tremendous cop-out. Their whole, oh look, it's, it's, it's Sean Connery, oh no, he's going to get killed, and then there is really bad, bad mask which they give to this, this other guy who has been pretending to be Bond on this exercise, which makes kind of no sense in... Anywhere else except Spectres, we use human targets for practice purposes, logic. It was kind of exciting and shocking on the first time you saw it, but on repeated viewings, the opening reveal really hasn't aged well. Yeah. Yeah, guys, I never really liked this kind of... uh, Somebody has, like, this Mission Impossible trope that uh, somebody has a mask that looks perfectly like somebody else's face it never really worked for me but they go with that it's a it doesn't quite work and um, plus it's kind of confusing really uh, it kind of is 
Well, if you look at the makeup that Sean Connery has in the stakes, it looks like they kind of tried to make some effort with the makeup, that he looks a little bit more like a mask and not Sean Connery. I don't know if you agree on that one. Uh, maybe, maybe a little. Now, now that you pointed out, like, there's some shadowing on the cheeks and stuff like that. But yeah. it's not a huge effect in any way. And then we get to the credits and this is one of the funkiest credits of the entire series because you can barely read the credits at some points because they are just reflected on the bodies of beautiful women well i guess you can read all of them because they repeat in like readable form after they have been messed with but this definitely establishes the whole bond format you have the opening scene, and then you have the credit sequence with beautiful ladies with the titles. I mean, it, it, it does establish the fact that there is still a long way to go until these opening credits actually get good. <laughs> I mean, okay. as I said before, it's really the beginning of the true Bond that we all know and love. Yeah. It, is, it, it is more hearkening more to the Bond format than, for example, the opening credits of Dr. No. This is more in the same vein of of presenting the credits to the audience, but this still no way is on the league of the opening credits of the later Bond films. This is kind yeah. of a bad. There is no really catchy, elegant orchestral theme song given to the movie, and even the shots of the ladies are pretty damn lazy. It's it's just extreme close-ups on asses and teats <laughs> and stomachs and backs and they, then the credits being projected on the skin. The tune doesn't really have that brassy kind of dramatic effect that the latter films do have. It's still kind of evolving, really, I think. It's kind of a simple scene, really. It's just like this texts projected against the naked ladies' bodies and... That's it, whereas in Goldfinger, for example, you already have a lot of composition going on. Here you basically have none. And we move on to the chess scene and a little establishing picture of Italy. Yes. Of Venice. And April 5th, they filmed the chess scene. And the set cost $150,000 to build without the ceiling. And the ceiling was created as a matte painting by Cliff Cully. And there was a two million budget, so the roof kind of cut into a dramatic portion of that two million budget, really. Yeah, kind of a crazy. You have two million budget and you waste, uh, or you use, allocate so much money for this scene, this set. And uh, as also my friend Mr. Tom Franklin pointed out, the chess game includes one of the most well known chess games in modern history. Recreated, Terence Young recreated the Boris Spassky's maneuver from the Boris Spassky versus David Bronstein match from 1960. And I have David Bronstein's book, which is called The Wizard, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which is really good. Okay, nice. The game is between Kronstein, uh, the team Czechoslovakia versus McAdams from Canada. And we move on to Blofeld's uh, shipboard. Some script changes were done on April 9th. And they shot it in April 10th. They had the set ready to go and Young swept some dialogue during shooting. 
Anthony Dawson, the Professor Dent or Blofeld is here and the shoot was kind of challenging. The script dialogue needed a lot of polish and in post-production they needed to shoot some additional close-ups of Lotelania. But with some pretty inventive shooting and editing they got it completed. For example, there's a shot where Lotelania approaches the fish tank and this is a shot that was played in reverse and when she goes back to the desk of Blofeld the same shot is played in the forward motion. Hmm. And the Siamese fighting fish, they actually tried to get the fish to fight for a long damn time. Yeah, they do. And there was a serious problem with Lotelania's shot because they had already shot everything they thought they would would be shooting but they were missing parts of dialogue from Lotelania so during editing actually during post-production they shot more of Lotelania but you know the set piece was gone but they needed a background for Lotelania when she's speaking so what they did was they made a back projection plate of one shot of Lotelania and in this shot Lotelania is there in a sort of a full shot and in front of this full shot they put Lotelania pasted in in a close-up and this close-up of Lotelania covers the full shot of Lotelania and they get the goddamn background in the back and they get the finished scene. Then we get to Spectre Island guys. So Klepp doesn't seem overly concerned to get Kronstein's plan done to the T no. She is in quite a hurry to get somebody to get the job done, so she simply punches a man in the stomach and concludes that uh, this is our guy based on his stomach. <laughs> well, it, it's the old brains versus broad <laughs> you know. When it comes to the novel, basically the novel starts up with this scene, when the girl is massaging Red Grant. And uh, the description of the massaging gives like very intimate details about Red Grant's body, how it's really perfect and it has a lot of sweat in it and whatever else there was. So it's a very, I would say, homosexualized description of what's going on there. I mean, he does have a damn fine physique. Yeah, in the book he had the perfect body. And I'm not complaining about Robert Cho's body. I mean, great body. And more me. Mm. So Klepp goes there, and we have Walter Gotel playing Mojenu or Morceni or however you want to pronounce that. Henrik, your thoughts? I, I think the body is complete garbage. <laughs> you think? Really? No, but that, that is basically the only intake I can actually give to you guys when it comes to Red Grant's body. Yeah. But there is no substitute for experience. Training is fine. Well, me personally, I'm more interested about the next scene. For the obvious reasons. Okay, looking forward to it. What do you call these knuckles that uh, Rosa Klepp hits him in the stomach with? Knuckle dusters. Okay, then we get to Turkey, finally. It's time to recruit Tatiana Romanova. There's a Russian dialogue moment right here. She's coming out of the consulate with her friends who work there. And uh, the guest from our Russian film episode, Jana, was kind enough to translate us this piece. And the 
discussion goes as follows. Are you sure you don't want to go with us? We are leaving. And Tatiana answers, I need to go shopping. And the friends say, okay, see you soon in place X. Don't be late. See you. She gets to Rosa Club. She points out that consulate must not know anything that Club is in Istanbul because she has defected and is now working not for Smirsh but for Spectre. This is a quite memorable scene. Well shot and establishes the outright creepiness of Rosa Klepp's character. She can keep on being creepy. Yeah, or sexy as you pointed out. Yeah. I I never said that. <laughs> well or 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 whatever it was. Sexually pleasing. Damn fine. <laughs> this this scene goes more or less as in the book. In the book they also drink champagne to loosen things up a little bit because Rosa Klepp is going to ask very personal questions just like in the film but in the book it is emphasized that it is actually for a Russian lady very inappropriate to ask such intimate questions and she actually Tatiana Romanova starts crying during the scene because because she was in love because she was in love and one more interesting point from the book is that Rosa Klepp asks for the names of the previous three lovers of Tatiana Romanova and um, she gives the names and uses them as bargain as in if Tatiana Romanova would be doing something inappropriate during her mission they would take uh, her previous lovers as hostages until she would continue doing the mission as instructed if you do you will be shot there's a wonderful dialogue throughout this film no wonder she was well appreciated for her previous contributions to the cinema Lotelenia. but then we got to the comedic relief ladies and gentlemen of sylvia trench henrik probably has a word or few about this scene sylvia trench and james bond Getting it on by the river. Well, it, it does start the misogyny right off the bat, kind of a, with <laughs> the first introduction of Bond. Does it? Please uh, shed the light on the misogyny. Well, B- Bond's interactions throughout the introductory scene, be- be being hard on, on his woman companion, throughout the scene, he's extremely dismissive. You also here see very much of the unprofessionalism of Bond, which the MI6, for some odd reason, are completely fine with. You know, this was in his own time. It was in his own time, and that does explain quite a lot when it comes to the old Bond films and Bond books, but that still doesn't mean that the material wouldn't have aged badly. badly. Yeah, there is the closing line of, yeah, now about that lunch. And as a kid, I thought they were going to really get some lunch from the back of the car, but I suppose they were going to just have sex in the back of the car. Yeah, Bondus is gonna feed her mouth full of sausage. (laughs) 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 But but when it comes to the Bond's treatment of women, in today's perspective, it, it, it really is rather problematic. 
I don't know. There's way more problematic things going up ahead. Uh, there, the, yeah, you you can you can say there are um, there are more problematic things going on, but well, uh, simply simply because you have something that is more problematic, it doesn't mean that the other subject matter also wouldn't be problematic. True, true. All right, uh, we have the M scene, the Q scene, and Money Penny scene, kind of all in one. Introduction of Desmond Llewellyn to the series. Well, it's probably because... the lamest weapon he was ever given, Bob. <laughs> yeah, but it's a more realistic adventure, so I respect that. And it's the most impractical weapon. I mean, a briefcase, it's not exactly stealthy, right? With cold sovereigns. Yes. <laughs> I actually did like Q's gadgets in this film. More yeah. than the later inventions that Q comes up with yeah, as the franchise it. goes on. I, I did like, even though you are completely right with the fact that as a James Bond gadget, the briefcase is kind of a lackluster and it is somewhat impractical. But I, I still did like, if you have to have these gadgets, which are a part of the franchise I've never been that much fond of, I do like it that they are these more realistic and, well, truthfully, even even more crappy than than the stuff he's given on the later films. I mean, if I was on a special mission, the last thing I, w- I would want to carry around with me is a briefcase. Yeah. That may be, that may be. But still, I, I do like the briefcase a hell of a lot more than the wristwatch that shoots the lasers <laughs> that we are given in the later films. In my opinion, Grant's watch, the asphyxiation strangling watch, is a damn fine machine. It's a, it's a really cool tool. That, that is, that is. Grant has maybe a better equipment than Bond. Okay, so Peter Burden from Dr. No was unavailable, so Desmond Llewellyn took over as the Q or Major Boothroyd and continued indeed until the 90s. We find out during M scene that Romanova has sent a message to the British that she is in love with the file archive image of James Bond and that Romanova has contacted Turkey's head of T. Karim Bay and informed that she will give it to the British on one condition that the decoder and her can be brought both to England. Lecture would be able to decipher the Russians' top secret signals and that's the plot. Okay, we get to the scene of with Moneypenny. We will forever have a mystery here. When Bond says that, let me tell you the secret of the world. And we do not get the continuation of this scene because M interrupts it. Tom, do you have anything to say about this this line by William Shakespeare when Bond comes back to Moneypenny? He says, once more unto the preach, dear friends. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe it's something not that you say every day. No. (laughs) It's a classic James Bond witty, and and you have to spend some time pondering it. It's a good line. It's a good line. It is. Educated guy. Oxford. Yeah. Bond is picked from the airport now in Istanbul. And for the first time, we are introduced to the code language. Excuse me, but how how does he sneak his briefcase through the airport? (laughs) Don't, don't, don't question it. Just don't question it. <laughs> you could kind of buy 
being able to sneak the briefcase through the airport security, if not for the fact that the briefcase also holds the entire sniper rifle within it. Well, if you if you think about the airport security of yesteryears, I think it was way more relaxed before the Patriot Act. So, yeah, and and being being an MI6 operative, and a luggage check would have been when Bond boarded the the plane. So it it would have been in Britain. So as an MI6 operative, it could have been that Bond simply can snuck any shit he wants into the plane <laughs> as he boards in Britain. Any shit, Henry. And the code language is, can I borrow a match? I use a lighter. Better still, until they go wrong. And we do have this line delivery like 600 times during this film. Well, well, at, at least in this film they properly do use the code lines. Instead of it simply being something that Bond says once in the entire film and then quickly forgets. Henrik, do pay attention. There's a Citroën 8-3-1-8-5-4 on duty tailing. And later on we find out that Mr. Red Grant is in that particular car. He was in control all the way. It was not the Bulgarians after all. Ha ha ha. But we get to meeting of Karim Bay. Pedro is here. Bless you, Pedro. In this film, he has the biggest family payroll in Turkey. Everybody of his employees is basically his sons. Because no room for daughters. I wonder if the daughters were thrown into the trash can during birth. (laughs) (laughs) Most likely. (laughs) He he simply sent them off into the tipsy camp. (laughs) You know, um, as I've said, he is the best actor, in my opinion, in this entire film. For many, many reasons. He's humorous. Oh, yeah. And tragically, he was diagnosed with cancer during the film. He was, he was. And he still maintained his professionalism throughout, from beginning to end. And that has to be respected, surely. Yeah, it was... uh... When they were kind of wrapping up Istanbul, well, because of his illness, Terence Young, the director, find out that the guy is kind of being moody sometimes, and uh, then he confronted Pedro, and uh, he did say that uh, maybe I am gravely ill, and they went back to England to check what is going on, and they found that he has a terminal cancer. And uh, But all the way through, this guy was such a trooper he insisted that he he will he will go through this film he had shot like 50 percent of his scenes and they went back to pinewood to film everything that they possibly could of with 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 pedro armandaris also went back to sound booth to record his dialogue for the scenes and at that point he was already really sick like he he was really struggling to pull it through in the recording booth but he he did it, and you can't really hear it. He sounds amazing, looks amazing. All right, then we get to hotel. Bond stays in room thirty-two, where everything is wiretapped, and wants to change the room to bridal suite, and does. Which is also booked. <laughs> but I'm sure 
he's not avoiding surveillance because obviously later on with Tatiana Romanova, the porn film of this film is filmed behind a fake fake um, mirror. And the tip is indeed used to bribe James Bond later on. Yeah, this is one of the important distinctions between the book and the film, guys. So in the book, the big thing is that Grant is indeed in the position of the porn film. And uh, and that is kind of used as the plot twist of the film at the end in the train scene. That, But in the film you have the whole specter element, which makes it more interesting in many ways in the book as well it's bond that attacks the guy the russian guy in the saint sophia church but here red grant is the guy who does basically everything for bond never was quite sure about this hotel clerk guys he seems to be disappointed or happy when he gets the money from bond logically thinking he was happy but uh, i used to interpret his voice in two ways in in this matter like thank you sir it looks like ali karim bay is going ali karim kaboom the bomb explodes in the ali karim bay apartment and he sits in a settee yeah it's a long wooden bench with a back and it's uh, the russians giving a retaliatory bomb after the dead bulgarian in the car by red Grant. Is it the Russians or is it Spectre who plays out the bombing? Well, I would say definitely Russians. Because I, I do understand that the whole game that Spectre is playing is that they make these hits first against the Russians uh, to get the Russians to re- retaliate so that the that the lo- local intelligence would retaliate back to the Russians and this way they would kind of destroy each other but Looking at it from the Russian Russian's perspective, going from one body you find to a full explosion hit on the head of the opposite intelligence operation, which also has been your kind of a long-running partner in Istanbul, is it's it is kind of an extreme solution. You kind of would have thought that if the Russians really are behind the bombing, they at first they would would have at least tried to ask from Karim that what the hell, dude. Well, considering that the Red Grant is kind of the guardian angel of James Bond and he is helping helped by Karim Bay, I don't see the point of trying to kill Karim Bay from the Spectre perspective. Yeah, could be. And Club says the Cold War won't stay cold very long. Yeah. Then we get to a reservoir. The water reservoir scene is indeed filmed underneath Istanbul. And uh, has something to do with Emperor Constantine. 1600 years ago, blah, blah, blah. And underneath this reservoir we have the present from British Navy. A telescope of sorts to see inside the consulate, uh, the Russian consulate. And inside, on the left, you have Koslovsky, chief of security center. You have General Vasily, director of military and intelligence. On the right, you have Benz, one of Koslovsky's agent. And on the left of General Vasily, finally, Krilenku, a Bulgarian killer. And Bond is zooming into Tatiana Romanova. And she apparently looks very tasty from this angle. Henrik, do you have anything 
to comment on the misogyny at this point? Uh, not at this point. It is something that we can, if you really insist, we can come back to in the gypsy camp scene. Or the ass slapping scene. Looking forward to it. It's kind of the same thing that, than, for example, in Goldfinger, where the movie actually tones down the problematic elements of the book. Because even if the book was written back on its day, uh, uh, you can see it in some of the choice words that James has for the other characters he faces. Like, for example, calling Orchop the Yellow Bastard. Which obviously is racist, but you could make the same magic argument that back in its day it was okay. But even the movie kind of acknowledges that, yeah, that hasn't aged that well. It, it's not exactly okay for us to do it in the film today. Henrik and Tom, we are at the gypsy camp. Krilenko is plotting to attack the gypsy camp. How do you feel about this? Like I said previously, when it came to the bombing, once again, seems kind of an oversight here. Like, like, at this point you are more or less starting an open war. And I, I, I don't know if, if this situation would make more sense if the Spectre would have been behind the bombing. Because at, at this point, from the Russian perspective, it would appear so that, that the Hungarians have killed one of their, their local operatives. And yeah. then someone has already made the Russians look bad by bombing the Hungarian intelligence. So now, now Russians w- themselves would be kind of a back-to-back. They could believe that the situation is so out of their hands that they can no longer resolve it diplomatically. That would encourage them to make this kind of a major open assault. Most definitely. Just like Bulgarians are friends with Russians, uh, Karim Bay is friends with gypsies, and they have created like this bond but unfortunately gypsies and bulgarians are kind of head butting against each other and we have the gypsy sisters fight choreographed three weeks in advance at pinewood all right how about you straight guys how how was the gypsy fight for you pretty lame to be quite fair with you oh yeah i'm with tom here like like, if you mean erotica or of anything that I would do. that would kind of tickle our reptile brains. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there is there is not that much material here, to be honest. Mm. Well, scratch that then, and we go to the stinking Grilenko, who attacks the camp. And as mentioned, uh, very little close-ups here. But oh, God's sakes, it's an action action scene, so you don't really necessarily need close-ups when it's an open war. And uh, Grant is being the guardian angel for James Bond. I, I kind of love how Bond simply walks all over the battlefield and kind of, kind of lazily reacts to every situation. He, <laughs> he goes there and he trips someone over and he turns this table over and he shoots that guy <laughs> over there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's just walking around like, like it would be a Sunday afternoon walk in the park. Like, okay. Pretty much. Flipping a table would kill a guy. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not sure if... I'm always wondering during this point if Bond is actually checking if these guys are both Russians or are they gypsies and Russians. So what's the point of interrupting the fighting anyway at the table? Well, okay. 
the chief Bavra says that James Bond is now his son. That's cool. And the, the gypsies stop fighting. Then we get to Anita's mouth. Henrik, Tom. <laughs> the Anita poster is from an actual movie called called Call Me Buana. And you can see it in the poster. Uh, starring Bob Hope and Anita Ekberg. She should have kept her mouth shut. She should have. <laughs> it was a film produced by, yeah, Gabby and Harry. And yeah, ends with the famous, uh, she should have kept her mouth shut. I like this scene. What else can I say? I, I like it too. It's one of my favorite scenes from the film. Yeah, yeah. E- e- even though it's not that kind of a spectacular It's the most action as you get in this film so far. It's amazing. Well, it's not the most. You you got more more action back at the gypsy camp. There were more people and more shooting. And Bond himself did more stuff. But But she has a lovely mouth, this Anita. Yeah, but this this scene is kind of more sticking to that whole espionage thing. This, This is a Bond kind of helping out another intelligence operative to pull off a hit. I will interrupt you right there. This is the kind of James Bond that we should be seeing on the silver screen or whatever digital screen you have nowadays. Because it has the adventure, it has the thriller and the excitement of traveling by train, not the Spectre way, goddammit. The From Russia with Love way, where you have you have this thriller aspect where the where you actually have a plot for God's sakes, and you don't have millions of ridiculous tools from Q to get about your day. It's just Bond and beyond, and uh, against Red Grant. So uh, this is what I want from the last Daniel Craig film, and this is what I most definitely not will not get from the last Daniel Craig film. Uh, I'm I'm still kind of keeping up the hope that that the last or. <sighs> Currently the last Daniel Craig film because the dude is go- going to make James Bond as long as the production company agrees to double his paycheck for every movie as seems to be the motive. <laughs> but I- I'm-, I'm still hoping that-, that the reception of Spectre will encourage the franchise to course correct itself and get more back into this into what what Daniel Craig era was before and and more into the style of for example from Russia with Love not gonna happen anymore unfortunately we've seen this type of films and they're you, never you, coming back you anymore you appear as someone who has heard some reports or scoops from from the production oh yeah it could be just written in Hollywood as it is at nowadays we're never getting back at this because there's not going to be people coming to watch this type of film. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, Casino Royale was very... <sighs> hold itself back a lot. <sighs> Casino Royale had things going for it. But at the end of the day, I was disappointed with it because it was far away from the novel. As they were thinking that they were saying that they would be pretty like faithful for the novel and they are not because in the middle of like was it like first 30 minutes and there's like a tanker exploding or almost exploding and fight at the airstrip what the fuck was that it's not in the novel anyway and i think that was unnecessary you could have toned it down way more than all those flying cars and i I, i'm i'm willing to actually 
give that much leeway to the franchise at this point because you, you today you have to have action in your James Bond films. But I don't want it. But but that's that's kind of something that you simply have to take with your franchise. Uh, it, it's 2019 for love of Christ, man. <laughs> what can you do? And then we have the hotel with Romanova and Bond order screen fix yogurt, coffee, very black, and prepares the shower. And Romanova dips into the bed, but it's not Daniela Bianchi who is going under the sheets in this naked scene. It's actually a stunt actor giving her stunt titties at this moment. Really? Yes. God damn it. Yeah, <laughs> damn it, man. And she does look very much like Daniela Bianchi. I can't tell the difference even in the Blu-ray. So, so how, how was she credited in the end credits? Uh, I don't know. Daniela Bianchi did the tits version. Yes, the stunt tits. <laughs> uh, turns out the decoding machine is in the Russian consulate. And Bond just that Tatiana should get the map of the consulate for him. And they can meet at the the Saint Sophia Mosque to collect it. But unbeknownst to them, the camera is rolling behind the mirror, Henry Cantam, and a sexy video is being recorded. But but Bond is literally fucking it up at this moment. So maybe the biggest fuck up of the entire series. And I I kind of love the movie for the for the uh, scenes like these yeah. and the o- o- overall atmosphere of the film, which is that Bond makes the dumbest decisions through and throughout the movie. When it comes to the shooting, Connery was clowning around, making fun perhaps of uh, Bianchi's awkwardness during bed scene, but also to calm her down. And this was, after all, her first film, at least at this level. In the sort of a Hollywood-ish situation, and for a Miss Something or like a beauty pageant, she does a pretty stunning performance, as far as I'm concerned. Hey, let's get to Saint Sophia Church while we're at it. Interesting, yes. first of all, that uh, they got to film in a mosque, isn't it? How the times have changed. I don't think this would happen so easily nowadays. <laughs> well. Um... They had real trouble trying to clear the crowds from the uh, cameras. Yeah, that happens definitely when they're trying to get inside a train. And yeah, Young, the director, made further adjustments by Bond not killing the Soviet agent, as mentioned, but it's Grant, Grant doing it. This, this gives kind of the focus and perspective for this script. Let's get to the map check, however. In the map check scene, well, it's a map check scene, and Bond says that all I want is the lecture. And Armendaris checks that, are you sure that's all you want? Well. <laughs> and we carry on the boat scene. We get to know that the lecture is about 10 kilos in a brown case. Brown like your eyes. Keep it technical. Great lines. Who else liked the boat scene? I did like the comedy that it added to the film. Yeah. And I, I also kind of liked keeping with the Bond making the stupidest decisions he can make in the situations in this film, 
I also like the fact that Bond in no way deemed it necessary to anyway edit the audio tape before he sent it to his boss. <laughs> But that was all worth it because we get to the M listening to the tape and Moneypenny's facial expressions are gold in this scene. I love it. I love it. It looks like my grandmother actually, like when she's listening to something very romantic. Uh, it's just, yeah, I, I love Moneypenny. And there's a story regarding M in Tokyo where Bond had an interesting experience with <laughs> M in Tokyo. I so wanted to hear that story, but it's paused at that point. Russian consulate. Russian clocks are always correct. Uh, Karim Bey gets his revenge in this scene with the Russians by blowing a bomb, as far as I'm concerned. And Bond steals the lecture. Guys, do you have an input on this? Because uh, Bond says that hell of a time to become superstitious. There's confusion about the date when they were supposed to attack the consulate. And uh, would you agree that the date of 14th was used here to try to confuse the opposition and instead they broke in on the 13th and they didn't inform Tatiana Romanova about it and just kind of a yeah trying to avoid the opposition of knowing what they're going to actually do it kind of would appear to be a logical thing to do I I never my my myself I didn't pay that close attention to it And I didn't form a, form a cohesive the- theory about that one line. So we, therefore we move on to consulate on fire scene. And they did set smokes around the Russian embassy to simulate a burning building. Now the, <laughs> the police cars, if you see them, you see, do see the ambulance arriving. You see them because the reason why the ambulance arrival looks so documentary-esque it's because it was the real ambulance. Shot without permission, of course. <laughs> And if you look at carefully at that shot when the ambulance arrives, there's like a like a what looks like a dad and a little boy. And they turn their selves to the camera and they wave at the camera. You can see it if you're quick. We get to the train. We it's the iconic scene. It is. It, it might be the biggest set piece of this movie. Mm, yeah. The boarding the train was a trouble in itself. Because there was uh, loads of crowds in around Istanbul. They were really interested about the filming all the time. And to distract their attention to somewhere else, the stunt guy went to some balcony and was hanging from the balcony and was yelling, help, help, help me. And yeah. so, yeah, the crowd was distracted by that. So they got their film filmed. So they hop onto the train and uh, there's some Russian dialogue once again. I did send this part to our Russian friend Jana as well, but um, she couldn't make out what the hell is going on in this dialogue. But I do remember in the old Finnish subtitles, this was translated uh, where the russian security man benz decides to hop on the train at the last second and his russian dialogue was translated more or less as tell the consulate that romanova has defected to the english side or something like this so yeah makes sense they wanted to shoot the boat 
a shoot that is in the end of the film in Turkey, but they were unable to do it. Poor weather, sluggish boats, rough season, seasickness and all that, so it was scrapped for later and shot in Scotland. And around this time they got the information that Armendares is indeed terminally sick. June 18th, he was using pain medications at the hospital and during lunch break when her wife was away for lunch breaks she uh, he actually shot himself so he would need not need to suffer any longer yeah and the wife actually found her lying dead on the hospital bed with a shot in, in at the heart pretty gruesome shit but 25 years later his son played a general in license to kill by the way and was that the only time he appeared or yeah it was was like five seconds. Oh. <laughs> so Armendaris is gone, but uh, the film crew has to carry on somehow, and they do. Tom, what can you tell us about the word Somerset? It is a county in England, yes? You know, Somerset is a county in England. Karen Bay explains that the train has to be stopped by his sons at the Bulgarian frontier, where they will hop out of the train. Because the conductor is, is the friend of Karen Bay. Hmm. And uh, from there, the plan is to go to Athens by car, I believe. And then from Athens to take a plane back to London. But as we see in the film, they go past the pickup point because Karen Bay is totally dead. James Bond doesn't know it yet. Tom, can you tell us something about the dialogue part? Quote. I will use this in Piccadilly. What is so special about Piccadilly, Tom? What can you tell us about Piccadilly? Why does Tatiana want to use her dress in Piccadilly? You know, I've been to Piccadilly 10 million times. Oh. <laughs> and it, it is chaotic. It's annoying on so many different levels. It's, it's actually hell, to be quite fair. It's... Um, Bang in the centre of London, and um, I'm sure you've been, right? I'm not so so sure that I've been in Piccadilly. Henrik, have you? No, I haven't even been to London, to my great shame. Oh. And another curious quote, guys. Bond comments on Tatiana's blue dress. Quote, it is four o'clock, you know. This is not culture at four o'clock, even on a honeymoon. Then I will take it off. And Bond comments, I think we're talking at cross-purposes here. Tom, what does it mean? On the train, right? Yeah. You know, I have no idea. I have no idea what yeah. she means by that. What? What is what, what cross-purposes? I was totally lost there. It means they both got the wrong end of the stick. It, it means they have completely contradictory motivations, intentions, thoughts. Yeah, the... And then more interesting dialogue. Uh, the Tatiana Romanova says that, okay, there's the, the train clerk first, or whatever, conductor says that there's been a terrible accident. And Tatiana Romanova's reaction is, no tea? Because that's the most logical reaction, right? For a Brit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> However, Karim did die. Yeah, but no tea. Yeah. 
and uh, Karim is dead, and uh, there's some violence. Violence brought on towards Tatiana Romanova by James Bond, and unfortunately, Tatiana Romanova knows nothing about the whole incident, and she gets slapped. Henrik, your thoughts? Is this quite sadistic at this point? This the scene where Bond comes back to the compartment and says that Karim's dead and liar and a push, facial slap. I don't know. I it, it's it's kind of a weird question that you propose <laughs> because yeah yeah in 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 a way in a, in a way feeding up the answers from from your counterpart. You you could say it's pretty sadistic, but at the same time I'm. Kind of gotten used to this, or almost a trope. Yeah, James, you're hurting me. In films back into the thirties, and I, I guess would, I would say mid sixties, the hurting and and well, slapping a woman into the face when you need answers, or even to kind of shake her up. It it was kind of kind of the go-to response, like like if, if you watch old film noirs and stuff for for example from Humphrey Bogart, you actually see see this thing put off constantly. Yeah, but with you know, with that out of the way, I I guess you could also say that that is sadistic. I kind of would like to see a version of the scene where actually the. Russian consulate worker is not Tatiana Romanova, but uh, Xenia Onatop, and I think she would like seriously slap Bond back at that moment. Yeah, mo- most likely. I mean, uh, in in a way, this is this is something you still see in the films. Like this, this is using violence to get answers. You you could say that it is it is using torture to get answers, and yeah. and torture as an interrogation method is something that. Still is extremely heavily used in in films, in 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 comics and in books. Like that, that is still one of the go-to solutions whenever you are dealing with with a hard to interrogate subject. Therefore, we go to Belgrade. Belgrade. Karim's son is having a meeting there with Bond, James Bond. This is weird because Bond is supposing the following scenario. Bond's theory is that Benz died first during the fight with Karim. I have no idea how he pulled that information off. And he tells that um, Karim Bay killed himself. He said, quote-unquote, did that himself. How does he conclude that? Like, what the hell happened there then? He first got stabbed, I guess, and in the back, and then he took cyanide? What is he talking about even here? Or what, what, what the hell? Bond's theory is kind of wacko, but later we find out that it was it was of course Grant who killed them both. So Bond's yeah. theory is out of the window. And Bond says he needs help to get across the frontier strip between Yugoslavia, the Slovenian part, and the Trieste in Italy. He tells him to ask M to send someone from Session Y to meet him in Zagreb, which is Yugoslavia once again, in the Croatian part. Still following. And the son always appeared to me very uncaring about his father's passing. I mean, the Bond tells him that his father's dead, and he's like, What? Who, who did it? Who did it? And when he exits the scene, he's like, Okay, okay, like, I'm going to have a drink now, or going to smoke. I don't know. 
Maybe he was the son who was supposed to kind of follow his father to the, and become the next head of the organization. So, so he, he, he got a promotion at this point. Right. Who did it? I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get to uh, Zagreb. Somehow Grant is aware of the meeting here with the MI6 operative and uses the coded language he overheard in Belgrad, Belgrad, and kills the man in the toilet. Just like that. And uh, back to the train it is. We are introduced to Nash, Captain Nash. Uh, Bond can't take the later through the Yugoslav Trieste border. Therefore, Captain Nash says that there are no stop still then so they need to jump off the train so they're trying the second escape point but uh, never mind that shit because it's time for a restaurant car and eating in a fancy way bond carries the lecture with him to the restaurant car as he should and bond takes the grilled soul that is a fish fish not an actual human soul and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh bond bond has a bottle of uh, blanc du blanc or blanc de blanc so whatever whatever that is and grant orders chianti the red kind of course because he's so red because actually in the book he was born in or raised up in northern ireland so the thing with that was that and this is something that not necessarily is the case today, since the g- g- kind of a uh, the etiquette has softened through the ages. But back back in when the film was made, it still was the proper etiquette that you did uh, drank red wine with meat and white wine with fish. So Grant here playing as Nash, he's he's breaking the etiquette. Right. And that apparently is extremely un-British thing to do. At least we have one cultivated person here in this podcast. L- like I said, but that's not that big of a deal anymore. Today it's it's pretty okay to take red wine with fish and o- only old geezers who at this point would be pushing like 60... I guess would anymore actually care for the etiquette in that sense and would anyway raise their eyebrows over you taking red wine with fish. Older. Yeah, even older, I guess. I guess older, yeah. I took red wine with red wine. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking the whole bottle with just a glass. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, back in the compartment. Grant has added chloral hydrate into... Tatiana Romanova's drink and... Busted. Yeah, busted. And um, uh, there's a steep gradient where the train will slow down anyway. And this is where the they want to get out of the train. And they will do whatever they do. And they, they take the main road in their plan and pick up a truck. And it's going to be 20 mi- miles from their current location. The, 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 the plot is all fine until... The point of the train. Is, is there really a point for Grant, Grant to wait for his moment to kill everyone and take the lecta? That uh, Does it make sense to wait for that long? I think he could have killed them all the way back in Istanbul in a sense. But uh, if if he really wants to set this up like 
that James Bond is going to commit suicide and the lady is going to be killed by James Bond, then maybe this is the best way to do it because they have their pickup point that is set up and agreed by M, I believe. So I guess, yeah, I, I could buy that. This is the best point to kill James Bond. Well, so the, at, at least doing it this way at this point kind of feeds into Grant's implied sadism. And yeah. he, him wanting to hurt and humiliate Bond before killing him. Yeah, imagine. I, I would be super stressed out and I would be really desperate to set up this like suicide and murder attempt way before this moment because it's just 20 miles until the pickup point and you know red ground is just going blah 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 at bond explaining the whole plot in detail and doesn't uh, i e- i too would have tried to pull this off earlier <laughs> yeah but the super plan is to that that the porn film will be found in tatiana's handbag and a letter will be placed in bond's stuff and uh, it's a letter from her threatening to give the film to the press unless you marry uh, Tatiana Romanova for helping to get the lecture. And uh, it's not a bad idea. You know, it could have worked, but uh, Red Grant totally craps it up. Uh, the more baffling notion to make here is exactly how boneheaded Bond still is during this moment. Like, at this point he knows that there most definitely is a third party at play. Or someone is messing with the situation. And yeah. He, Grant has already been caught for breaking the etiquette and Bond has already picked up on the fact that Grant did drug Tatiana. Mm. And yet still, even on this point, Bond is like, yeah, I'm gonna believe your word. And, you know, <laughs> lowers his weapon and lets Grant have a, an upper hand. Yeah, the stupidest moment is when when Grant is explaining the map and the whole plan to Bond, and then he just smacks Bond into the neck and uh, knocks him out. Like, what the hell? Let's keep your distance. Yup. But at the same time, like, like I said earlier, I still kind of do love the film for these obvious mistakes that Bond makes throughout the movie. Okay. Yeah, you you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least Bond is like... Uh, In the later it, parts of the franchise, Bond becomes more and more this... This super being who beats everyone in a fight easily and always is one step ahead of everybody's plans. Exactly, so, he's, yeah. he's, he feels vulnerable still. In, yeah. he, he's, he's more vulnerable, he's, he's more realistic and in From Russia, Bond actually really has to pay in some form for his, for his weaknesses in character. Like, his, his lust for sex does create a situation w- which leads into the porn film. And uh, also, Bond not being the super genius he later turns out to be in the later installments feeds into Bond falling into obvious traps here. And I really do like this aspect of the film. Yeah, I also like the more vulnerable James Bond, and the fact that this might be just the most closest adaptation of any Ian Fleming novel put onto the screen. Maybe Doctor No as well, but From Russia with Love is pretty pretty close to the novel still. But yeah, Tatiana is totally drugged out. 
During the filming, Conroy liked to play games with Bianchi. For example, he tickled her when she was supposed to be passed out from Grant's drugs. So, great help. And the train fight ensues. Uh, filmed in June 20th, June 21st. Grant fight is filmed like... Grant fight in the train was really complicated due to the limited space that they had there at the Pinewood in the train. And they used three cameras to complete the scene. The actors were really on board with this scene. There was only one shot, in my understanding, where a stunt player was required. And some felt that Terence Young was going way too far with this scene and the audience would backlash because of the brutal reality of the scene. Your thoughts? I I do see the reality. I, I don't see what would cause the backlash. Of course, that is coming from me. As as someone who has been kind of a desensitized by the violence and a lot of extreme gore you see in action movies today. And what do you think about Robert Shaw's performance here? For example, lines like, not until you kiss my foot. Like, he <laughs> just might be one of the best actors in the whole series. To me, he is one of the best actors in this film. Yeah. And, Tom, I agree. And and he's he's not in an easy position as an actor because technically he is, or I would say that he is technically the only real antagonist this film has. There are the background villains like Clep, but they don't physically themselves take real part in the proceedings of the film. They are precisely in the background before they show up in a couple of scenes. So when it comes to having a villain, when it comes to having an opposing side, it kind of falls simply on Grant. And that being the almost only villain of a major spy action movie, it is kind of a hard act to pull off. Yeah, super physical scene. Sweat is flying all around. There is this one sound bite that I always notice when this uh, train fight is happening, and I've, I've named it the Nancy sound bite. Sorry, guys, I'm totally autistic in this podcast, but there is this one sound bite that repeats over and over and over during this fight, and it sounds like this Nancy, Nancy, Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> Probably nobody else noticed that. No, that's good. And well, the old man is finally killed, and Tatiana and Bond get out out of the train according to Grant's plan. And there we have one guy waiting for him. I don't know if he's Russian or what, but he's there. And uh, Bond takes over the situation, takes uh, control of the car. Just kind of nonchalantly throws uh, Tatiana to the back of the car. Like, okay, sleep there then if you're not going to wake up. But I guess that makes sense because still the bad guy needs to be kept at watch in the front because he knows Grant's plan and what's going to take up and what's going to happen next. That's probably the only reason why Bond knows where the hell he's going to drive. All right, morning comes, copter scene. Copter scene at the end is inspired by North by Northwest's crop duster scene. Henrik, have you seen North by Northwest? Of course I have. And North by Northwest was something that also immediately came into my mind 
when I saw the copter scene here. <laughs> Connery did a lot of his own stunts here, and the crew had his like a sigh of relief every time. Well, Sean Connery didn't kill himself when the helicopter was flying above. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then we get a little sword shot of Blofeld's ship. Because Blofeld wants to announce that she has already negotiated a price for returning to Lecter. What, what? Do you think this was Blofeld's plan all along? Just to sell the Lecter back to the Russians? No. No. Okay. What, what would be the end game for Spectre for deciphering the secret communications of the Russians? I guess there is a point. I guess it could be valuable, but... Uh... It's a good question, but I guess we'll never know. You know. Yeah. So, uh, guys, um, it seems that Blofeld's hideout is somewhere around Venice, or we must assume that, because in the next scene, uh, well, Mojene, the hench guy, just appears. We, 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 just, we just saw him at the Blofeld's goddamn boat office, and now he's at the action scene against Bond, so he has to be really close by. And he just comes into the action scene to challenge Bond, which is supposed to be Gulf of Venice. And the chess game as well, of course, because uh, Kronstein is, is wanted, and ten minutes later turns up, turns up in the uh, presence of Luffel. Yeah, Kronstein's been stabbed with a boot at this point. He's been booted. Tudinch! Tudinch! And... Uh, <laughs> In the book, the Spectre Island is located somewhere around Crimea, so that would be like thousands of kilometers a little bit off, but in this film it seems to be around Venice. So, Sunday, July 6th, uh, they commenced with shooting of this boat scene. They had trouble, they shot it with explosives, but they were not supposed to use the explosives, so it was just a training, and they fucked it up. They had to reshoot it with explosives, which was really expensive, which made the film extremely expensive and over budget and over schedule. And there was uh, this incident, famous incident with helicopter guys, uh, when they were scouting for locations around Scotland to shoot this scene. It took off, this helicopter took off, went over the water, rose about 30-40 feet and then didn't rise above the water and stood still for a moment. And then it went sideways and the blade of the helicopter hit the water and because of the, I guess, because of the marvelousness of this pilot, it flew off, which might have been for their benefit at that moment. Anyway, the helicopter went underwater, maybe 30, 40 feet, or would that be like 12 meters at max? And uh, <laughs> the director was there, there inside the bubble inside the helicopter, underwater, like James Bond, kicking the helicopter's window so that he could get out with this other guy, Michael. And they got to the ground. Terence was bleeding, but after 35 minutes they were like, okay, let's just keep on shooting. No biggie. So props for him for that. Kind of a James Bond thing to do. But fear not, our listeners. There's more havoc on the way. Like When they finished the Scotland shoot on, on the July 17th, there's Connery and Bianchi driving to a next shooting location and <laughs> the driver of Bianchi falls asleep and maybe our listeners as well but the the car just start, <laughs> s- starts doing flips uh, several times 
because the driver <laughs> fell asleep and almost the car went into the river. And Connery was uh, certainly kind of a James Bond at this situation as he rescued Bianchi from the car. After this, they pretty much wrapped the 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 principal photography guys. But I guess you know that this was... They did shoot a lot of material even during the post-production. Like Terence Young went way back to Venice to shoot the ending of the film, which was missing, and a lot of key scenes. When there was only three months to go until the premiere. Yeah. And Peter Hunt, the editor, did a lot of ingenious editing, rearranging a lot of the shots that they had done in the... Uh, start of the film which really uh, helped the film and they reshot the shot where they removed the end removed the mask from the fake james bond and now they added a mustache for the guy to make the differentiation that this is not james bond i guess we now get to the scene with rosa Klepp fighting against james bond and she has the poison Poison spike shoe, the same that Blofeld wears in some previous scenes, and gets shot by Tatiana Romanova. This is a great scene also for the fact that she, that Tatiana kind of gives a middle finger for Kleb to kind of, her love for James, for a couple of months anyway, <laughs> is more important than Mother Russia. Okay, but she also did r- fight on the right side. She did but the right th- thing. Then again, does Tatiana actually know that? Because there is no scene in the film where everybody, anyone would explain to Tatiana that Kleb has defected to Spectre. Uh, what, 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 what do you mean? So Tatiana Romanova basically totally defects at this point from the USSR. Which because... is kind of a odd notion, because in the beginning of the film... Tatiana's extreme loyalty to the state is pro- is being brought up. And I, for love of me, really don't see in the film the moment where James in any way would have made anything that remarkable that it would kind of explain Tatiana giving up her extremely loyal attitude towards the Soviet Union and instead falling so madly in love with Bond that she would defect. I mean, if, if you would like to make a logical argument, you could of course make the point that Tatiana, even with her not actually knowing that Gleb has defected, she still helped Bond to steal the lector. And this way she has committed a treason. And that of course could feed into the, to her desperation, that now she has to defect to Brits simply to avoid returning back to the Soviet Union and having to explain her actions and most likely facing a firing squad. But that would kind of be the only motive that she would would have to defect to Britain. You can go with the fact that she is madly in love with James Bond, but it doesn't matter that she is still doing the right thing at least at the plot convention of the film taken into account that these are the evil guys and James Bond is fighting against them. They, they are the evil guys to the audience who knows yeah. that they are Spectre, but they are her countrymen from the point of view of Tatiana. 
unless someone has explained to her that Gleb has defected. But as Tatiana Romanova points out here, after shooting Gleb, a horrible woman. Still, and still the head of of their Soviet intelligence. Come or on. A, at least that was the impression that she had. She was just a corporal. No yeah. Biggie. Yeah. Yay, I win this argument. Goodbye. I, I, I would say you simply win this argument by having the script on your side. Clep <laughs> being a horrible bitch does not automatically kind of explain you killing your own boss. Especially since you are supposed to be extremely loyal to your country. Oh my god. No. I disagree. God damn it. Loyalty to your country does not work in the way that you can simply disregard it immediately in the moment when you have a disagreement with your boss. But then again, um, okay, let's say that Tatiana Romanova was physically assaulted and uh, sexually assaulted by Rosa Klebb. Maybe that was enough punch for her to shoot her. Maybe it wasn't about the country. Maybe it wasn't about James Bond. She just wanted to shoot that. Well, Rosa well if, if, if you want to go with, with the assault theme here, the best you can actually spin up is, is Tatiana falling in the hands of a pimp. In the sense that Clep ends, ends up pimping Tatiana to Bond. <laughs> But but once again, once again, you know, extreme loyalty. It, it, it is beyond question, as Gleb herself points out. It's from Russia with love, not from Russia with with Rosa Gleb. Well, what, what about love to Mother Russia? From Russia with Mother Russia. No, that uh, that's, a, that's a stinking title, Henrik. No, no, but, but still, you know, e- even the title does not uh, clearly define... To whom the love is meant to. It's, it simply imp- makes it clear that it comes from Russia. I guess we will leave it at that. Well, the movie is basically over after this <laughs> Venice post-production shot scene with with all the extravaganza. There's a huge change that happens when you think about the music of Bond after this film. Like here, John Barry is still sounding like he's doing a more careful, kind of a more classical type of movie soundtrack. And if you look at Goldfinger, it's all about the brass and the shit tons of noise. Like it's yeah. a super noisy soundtrack, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And there's definitely an evolution in good and bad. Like Dr. No sounds super classical movie soundtrack from the 60s. Whereas... From Russia with Love is slightly like bigger in its sound, and Goldfinger is making history right there, which we will not cover in this podcast right now. That's from Russia with Love, guys. Yeah, I have to admit, I didn't get any love from Russia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you got a temporary Tinder level relationship. <laughs> So, guys, I think before you give your final verdict on the film, there's a lot of quick, quick categories or uh, quick categories to cover. So, favorite performance, Tom Franklin, what do you reckon? It's 100% Pedro. Pedro gets the vote. Henrik? Um, 
Connery would be kind of the obvious pick, but I go with Robert Shaw. I have to go with Robert Shaw as well. He gives me the chills when he's delivering those lines to Bond during their confrontation in the compartment. Like, uh, I can't, I can't really think of any other actor that would be better in this franchise right off the bat. Like that tells a lot. So favorite scene, Mr. Franklin. It's the chess scene for me. Okay, why so? You know the creepy look on Kronstein, guys. Just set, just sets the whole tone for me. The, the eye contact by Kronstein is just so unusual. <laughs> That's, uh, it just the makes work. a film, in my opinion. It, it just epitomizes Spectre, calculated. You know, yeah. In the book, by the way, he doesn't get the message via the glass. He gets the message via enveloped letter. So a rather more boring solution. Really? Yeah. But uh, Henrik's favorite scene? I guess that would be Bond stealing the lector from the Soviet consulate. I didn't uh, script this beforehand, but uh, definitely this is my fav- favorite scene when... Yeah, the scene where James Bond is confronted by... Red Crown in the train. That's definitely my favorite scene. And Mr. Franklin, what is your favorite quote? My favorite quote would have to be, she should have kept her mouth closed. (laughs) 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 Which is hilarious. (laughs) It's a good one. Henrik? Uh, I would go with a bit more serious one. The uh, blood is the best security in this business. Oh, okay. I remember what's my favorite quote. This is going to be a tricky one. Please give me a second. Ah, scrappy shit! Scrapsticks! So that's the death of Rosa Clep. Sorry. I was actually expecting you to go with. She had quite a kick. That's a pretty good one. Favorite kill, <laughs> Tom Franklin. Favorite kill. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you know, there's not many interesting kills in, in this film. <laughs> no, there ain't. Uh, um, so I would have to go with when Bond kills Grant. Yeah. That would be my pick also. It is the most technically difficult. Kill scene in this film, and also the one that gets most physical and most violent. All the other kills in the film are actually quite quick. It is Bond shooting someone, or someone else shooting someone, someone quickly snapping someone's neck, or Bond simply shooting that one guy who drops the grenade and stuff like that. Yeah, for me it would be stunt actor number 27 at the gypsy camp when Bond shoots him randomly. No, I'm, I'm going to go with Grant as well. So, three Grants. Okay, this would be the moment when we are going to ask the random question of the evening. Any ideas? What What are the Bond traits of Mr. Henrik? Uh, I, I, I guess the major mis- misogyny and rampant alcoholism. <laughs> and Mr. Frankland. Everything. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Handsomeness, intelligence, sense of dress. 
Yeah, I can't pick any of, any of those, seeing how I'm a co-host in a, fi- a film podcast. So, so <laughs> I- intelligence and smart brains are immediately out of the question. <laughs> Which image best exemplifies this film, Mr. Tom? Ooh, ooh. Which image? Yeah, or which shot? Ooh. Yeah, I would say when Bond is in the office with M. Uh huh. In my opinion. Yeah, why not? It's the first film where we have the whole like group together: Desmond, Lou, Ellie, Bernard, Lee, Louis, Maxwell, Sean Connery, Henrik. Um, I guess that would be the scene after the gypsy camp fight. Which is when Vardavar... Which is when a relatively confused Bond... Uh, when Bond is relatively confused about what is going on around him and somebody, some, someone simply comes to him and informs Bond that you took some minor part in the fight but you managed to save the precisely the right person so here is two ladies for you as a reward. <laughs> and they are suddenly totally happy to coexist. For me, it's uh, Red Grant and Sean, or James Bond in the train, when Red Grant is pointing the silencer at him. But first image that comes to mind from this film, Mr. Franklin. The first image that comes to mind? Mm. It's the first one. With the Pinewood Garden? Yeah, exactly. Where you really get to grips with um, the villain, which is... Grant just strikes you right off the bat as calculated and competent and it it really sets the tone f- for the whole film I think. Yeah, that there's that Kronstein traits. For me, whenever I think about this film, it's o- always the gypsy camp first. Really? Yeah, it, not a special reason for that I guess, but it's the gypsy camp anyway. To me it's the scene when Karim kills Krilenko it, hmm. it, it, for me, it's kind of a highlight that still the more realistic, more down-to-earth, more John Le Carre attitude towards the espionage. What took Tom out of this film? I mean, the lack of real action kind of turned me off somewhat. Henrik, is this also a slow film for you? What do you say? It is, especially if you compare it to the later entries in the in the franchise, which yeah. easily can be something that you have already gotten used to. If you if you have followed the franchise or if you have gotten into the franchise on a later date, like for for example, if your first contact with Bonds were the Roger Moore films or something yeah, sure. that is a bit more action oriented. Let's say it's just a random flick from the 60s. Does this pace bother you? Still, it has a lot of uh, quick pace cutting from Peter Hunt, which might be still revolutionary during those times. But uh, yeah, I think there's maybe some too much of this actually really complicated, like literary type of dialogue scenes. And maybe a few too many. I, on the other hand, did not have a problem with the dialogue or the pacing of the film. I I was not being taken out from the film at any point. Yeah, same here. I wasn't taken out. But uh, what pulled Mr. Tom in to From Russia with Love? Probably the quality of the characters themselves. 
such as Rosa Klebb, who is kind of really unique in the whole franchise. Hmm. Of course, Sean, of course, Sean Connery speaks for himself. You know, Henrik. To me, it would be that funny scene when Bond appears at the office for the first time and throws his hat to the rack. Yeah. For my next miracle, I... Precisely that moment. It, it got <laughs> the first laughs out of me. And it, it was kind of the entry point after which I was with the film the most. Yeah. For me, uh, once again, I have to go to the train scene with Red Grant. No question. Not until you kiss my foot. Yeah. Well, I don't know. This is an interesting film, Henrik and Tom, because it has multiple endings. We have Red Grant being killed. That's one. We have uh, the boat scene, explosion. And we have Rosa Klebb being, Klebb being killed. And then the movie is finally over. It has three endings. In a sense. But I guess everything kind of comes into a point around the end of the train scene. Let's call that. Yeah, whatever. Pretty much, yeah. The whole Rosa Klepp fight is is a bit of an afterthought when you compare it to the train scene fight. Although, these are important. Because it tells you that James Bond is indestructible. He's kind of a superman. That's what it's trying to say, in my opinion. When you get this repeated wins. That and it, it does wrap around the story in the sense that all, all, all the active bad guys are now dead and Bond can finally close the case with Clep out of the picture. But still, I, I, I would say that the tension kind of reaches its high point and with that is also resolved with the ending of the train fight. Like that, that is the point when the major bad guy Exits from the film. Henrik Tom, did you get annoyed by the multiple endings of this film? Was it a problem nope. for you? No, no. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, because I, I think Bond films are kind of known for the fact that they have trouble ending the film because they keep yeah. on pushing different kinds of ending endings yeah. of the film. For example, what comes immediately to mind is the Living Daylights. You have the fight with in the airplane. And then there's the finishing scene with Whitaker that's completely separate from the Morocco scenes. Well, anyway, the Scissors of, scissors of Sacrilege. I guess you could kind of speed it up a little bit in the first act, but nothing major, really. It's a great detective thriller through and through. Henrik? I wouldn't touch the film as it is. I, I know that I gave it a lot of crap for the misogyny and that that is kind of the running theme and running problem with the entire franchise to a point where you can actually make an an episode of its own simply tackling on how how the films have portrayed women and how they have tried to kind of dance around the whole misogyny subject but (coughs) even with that in mind I, I do acknowledge that the film is a relic of its time, and mm. there, therefore, I do reserve myself the right to call it out in Bond movies, but I am not going to crucify an individual Bond film simply because of it, and therefore I would not really make alterations into the film. Good call, good call. Tom, would you 
cut or change anything in this film? Boy, well, I would change the... Um, well, for me, the action wasn't good enough, really. Mm-hmm. As I've said before, the um, the fight scenes weren't really that intense, really. I guess it depends what you're looking for from your film. I do respect that all many of the Bond films can be different and try to be something different, and that's what I like from in From Russia with Love. So I'm not expecting for these Bond traits. I mean, the director was concerned that the fights were too violent for the audience, but... Um, for the time it was, probably. Yeah, for the for the 1960s, they, it probably was too violent, but in hindsight, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. And Tom, please complete this sentence. You really know you're watching From Russia with Love when? Oh, oh I have no idea. Um, <laughs> uh You've got me. I have to <laughs> Well, we'll let you think about it. Um, you really know you're watching from Russia with love when, when you're in Istanbul and you go to the Russian consulate. <laughs> oh. I, 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 I would like to correct that actually. When you have, <laughs> when you have one of the best one of the best uh, train scenes in in the film history as far as I have seen them. What about Henrik? When you start checking your six while in a hedge maze. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Three adjectives to describe the film. Tom. Ooh, ooh. Slow. Um, interesting. Probably exciting as well. Henrik? Well, there is this poster. It's it's not one of the most well-known posters of the film, but basically it has Bond in the middle and five arrows pointing to him. And the first one reads, target the unkillable James Bond. And then there is the rest of the four are clips from the film with captations, blast him, seduce him, bomb him and strangle him. And w- with that, I would kind of have my three adjectives would be seducing, blasting, and strangling. <laughs> uh, thrilling, detective-esque, and nightly, which could be used for billions of films. But I really do enjoy the film when they are exiting the train finally. And yeah, that those shots at what are supposed to be like 6 a.m. or whatever, it's, it's, it's great. Did you guys look at your Rolex when watching this film? Did you get bored, Mr. Tom? Mm, no. No. Yep, same here. Henrik, it's your burden to tell us for tonight as the first one. Would you recommend From Russia with Love? I would. I would. It's not perhaps the easiest point to, to watch for today's audiences, and th- there is a big difference between this as a Bond film and the more modern Bond films. But I I still feel that this is this is relatively well made B- Bond movie, and I did greatly enjoy the more realistic and more down to earth touches that this film had. Also, I... if if you are kind of a sick of seeing Bond as an 
always surviving Superman, in that case most definitely check this one out. I th- I thought, Henrik, that you would en- enjoy this. And truthfully, this is, I would say this is my favorite Bond film from Sean Connery, for sure. I mean, there are things that I like from each film, but like you, I kind of like this more realistic, more greedy-esque, more vulnerable James Bond detective thriller. So, yeah, I would also highly recommend this film. Please watch it. And what about Tom? Yes, I would recommend it. You know, I think there are more action-packed James Bond films that one could watch. However, to understand the whole chronology of the uh, franchise, I think it's essential watching, really. So, Yeah. That it is. Most definitely. All right, guys. We, I guess we have survived. We went through the film. <clears throat> And we have now just started this this bond watching extravaganza in this podcast. So each month from here on in, during the last Thursday of each month, you will get in the Flick Lab the amazing company of me, Henrik and Tom to talk about a James Bond film. And next up, it's going to be Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Guys, did you survive this episode? How how do you feel? I guess, you know, seeing how I've done this for some time now with you, I guess this is was the most hardest thing for Tom, who is a newcomer and who now has to face the reality that if he really plans to stick with us throughout this Bond run here in this podcast, he's better get used to this fucking four-hour recordings which we <laughs> usually push out. hope no hard feelings and see you with the bond in about a month and while you're at it you could still check our international cinema challenge that i like to remind you of so each month at least once we will go through a film from a kind of a sometimes an unknown country there's this challenge that we will watch 20 films from 20 different countries and if you want to participate wow. in the challenge yeah you can join us watching these films and if you don't you can of course make your own plan to watch 20 films from 20 different countries and yeah watch some other films at the end of the year at least in january 2020 if there is somebody who wants to join this podcast as a guest and who has watched these films or watched 20 films from 20 different countries, you're welcome to join us. And let's just talk about the amazing experience that you all had watching Uncle Boon Me and One Shot for 5 minutes. Thank you for joining us and uh, for, for me it would be ciao. So ciao from me. Hey, but I got a lot of